Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin with the Hoban Law Group, uh, speaking to you today from uh, lovely Northbrook, Illinois. Uh, I'm joined by my uh, co-host, Jim Marty of uh, Bridge West Accounting and Other Financial Services. Uh, Jim, can you uh, give us some idea where we might be able to pin you down at the moment? Is that possible? Hey, Larry. How you doing? Yeah, lots going on. Uh, we're just returning from our uh, vacation to the northwest uh, part of uh, California. So I'm rolling through uh, southern Oregon. I'm not driving. I'm in the car, but I'm not driving. So if I drop off suddenly, it's because I'm in a very rural area. But, uh, yeah, we have a lot to talk about today, a lot going on. Uh, number one, uh, the Deadhead Cannabis Show was in the uh, top 20 of uh, cannabis podcasts. Uh, I'm sure you saw that. I did. Uh, somebody was kind enough to share that with me, and uh, I was very, very excited about it. Uh, I went home and told my kids, and they said, well, how many cannabis podcasts are there? And I said, that's not the point. If somebody has an article and says top 20 and they put our name in there, by God, I'm claiming top 20. But um, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because really what it is, it's a credit to uh, the people who tune in and listen to us each week. And uh, we cannot lose sight of the fact that it's a credit to uh, Dan Humiston. Uh, who was the brain uh, child behind all of this in the first place, brought us all together, brought Rob Hunt on board with us, and and also uh, uh, Dan Humiston has brought with us his son Jamie, who's helping us out today. So we really have a great uh, crew, a great group of people, and you know if that helps make us a little more popular among the listeners of the world, then that's a good place to be, don't you think? Absolutely, and uh, yes, I was glad to see on that uh, review they gave us that they pointed out we have over 100 episodes of the Deadhead Cannabis Show now, so that's something that we can be proud of. Well, I, I like that. I'm, I'm just old school enough to like the fact that they called us old school deadheads. For whatever little bit of extra, you know, uh, credibility that gives me out there, I'll gladly take it. Uh, nobody's ever called me old school anything except my kids when I try to keep up with them on the basketball court. So, and Jim, as you know, we have a, uh, we're very, very lucky. We have a, uh, a great guest with us today, uh, Jay Cowie. Uh, Jay is coming to us uh, from Buchanan, Michigan. He's going to join us on the show here in about five minutes. Uh, he's got a lot of really interesting things to talk about. He is a consultant in the cannabis space, but in addition to that, he has a tremendous background. He sits on the board of the Rex Foundation, um, and uh, so we will have lots of interesting questions to be able to ask him and talk to him about. But Jim, we don't want to bury the lead. We are the Deadhead Cannabis Show. And we gave big uh, shout out last week to the fact that Fish has a summer tour lined up. And lo and behold, now so, so does uh, Dead & Company. And uh, I'm sure you've seen the, uh, the list of shows uh, starting off in Raleigh, North Carolina on August 16th and continuing through with a few breaks here and there uh, until they close out with a three-show uh, three run at the Hollywood Bowl culminating on New Year's Eve, which uh, not New Year's Eve, Halloween, excuse me which will put them directly head-to-head -head with Fish and its recently announced Halloween show at the MGM Grand. In Chicago, they're going to be doing two shows at Wrigley Field in mid-September. Uh, I tell everyone as a Cardinal fan, it's the one time I feel comfortable venturing into enemy territory when it's been turned into a Grateful Dead theme park, uh, and that's a lot of fun. And uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But just the idea of being able to get out and have some live music, I think, is a wonderful thing. And before I go any further, I do want to welcome into our show right now my uh, other co-host, Rob Hunt, who is joining us from lovely California. Rob, how are you doing? 
Doing great, Larry. I experienced some technical difficulties today of losing my internet connection for a few minutes. I apologize for joining the team late, but uh, great to see you, and Jay, great to meet you. Yeah, well, we're glad you could be here. We're just getting started. We're just talking about, uh, you know, just as an initial matter, how excited we are that that and company has announced a tour for the summer and into the fall. And uh, as with anything related to the Grateful Dead, there is a little bit of mystery involved with all of that as well. They have an open weekend in October. Uh, it happens to coincide with one of the weekends of Jazz Fest, and it will certainly be a topic of conversation from now until whenever they say they are or are not going to be there, um, that we will be uh, thinking and hoping that they may even pull that off and make Jazz Fest that much more fun for everyone else. Have you had a chance to look over the set list, Rob? Do you have any thoughts on it? I'm sorry, the tour dates. Yeah, I've looked at the tour list, and I'm, I'm conflicted because they're playing San Diego uh, on the 27th of October, which is you know right before Fish plays in Vegas. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, can I go to all these things? Uh, the Hollywood Bowl uh, run looks pretty darn fun as well. So, again, I got very lucky with, uh, with this tour of having quite a few dates um, in Southern California. And, you know, some, uh, surprisingly, nothing in Northern California announced uh, for those Dead & Co. shows, which really caught me off guard of how can you not play your hometown? I don't know. But uh, listen, if they all have to get out and travel, you know, I'm not going to cry for them. I've been traveling out to see them out there for years and years. So, you know, if it can be a little closer to us for a change, uh, even in the Midwest, so be it. That's 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 a good thing. But, yeah, that's going to be great. Very, very excited to see that. And, um, you know, it's just nice to have the excitement of tour. Oh, my God, I got to start thinking about I got to get my tickets and where am I going to stay and which shows can I go to and when can I take off work? And You get to go home two nights. You get to go to Wrigley and, and go back and sleep in your own bed, which on Dead Tour was always the, uh, the the huge luxury. That's why I loved when I lived in New York. That's why I loved MSG shows and Brendan Burns and Nassau's. Is, oh. you know, I could actually see a show and make it home and sleep in my own bed at night. Don't get me wrong. That is, you know, for any of us, the epitome of the perfect night to see the Grateful Dead is when you, at the end of the night, you wind up in your own bed in your own home. It's a wonderful thing. It doesn't happen often enough, but that's only because we all choose to go other places to see them, but that's okay. You know, we, we take them and we can get them. And uh, yes, Wrigley Field will be a fun place to see them. We've seen them there in the past. Uh, they turn it into a Grateful Dead theme park. So uh, it makes it a fun, comfortable place for all of us, uh, even those of us who aren't diehard Cub fans. Um, and they never disappoint when they come there. So we are certainly looking forward to that. Uh, for me, it'll be coming right on the footsteps of my son's wedding in Atlanta. So I'll have just enough time to get home and get the car unpacked and uh, get ready to host some friends and see some shows down at Wrigley Field. Well, I'm fired up. Fired up to start seeing live music again in general. And I think that uh, in the last week or so, I've gotten the sense that uh, it is truly coming back. Where I've actually been at coffee shops and some other places where there have been bands playing. I've had dinner in a the small town of uh, Williams, Arizona the other night next to the Grand Canyon, and there was a guy sitting out there playing on the deck, and for the first time I realized, wow, this is the first time I've seen a person with a guitar in his hand playing publicly in, you know, 14 months. So just having anyone playing anything was uh, was pretty nice to see. Absolutely. No, it's true. It's, 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 you know, crazy how much you miss it, and, you know, it, it just drives me deeper and deeper into, you know, all the CDs and all the great stuff we've been listening to. I know we've been talking a lot about the 49th anniversary of Europe 72. And um, we've now finally reached uh, the point where in the tail run, they've only got the four Lyceum shows in London left starting on the 23rd. Uh, and then that amazing tour comes to an end and uh, all those CDs get stuck away for another year until uh, until the tour pops up or somebody comes by and says, do you have one of those shows I can listen to? Uh, but I did happen to mention to you in an in a email the other day, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, a couple of nights ago, they did the Radio Luxembourg show. And one of the funnest parts about that was they had a couple of uh, uh, warm-ups tunes when they were doing the sound check. 
and one of them was um, Big River. But they played Big River all the way through a few times with Jerry singing the lead. And uh, I just love that. I thought it was a uh, a great thing to hear him singing the lead on. You know, we all think of it as a, you know pretty much a traditional Bobby tune. Um, you know, and there's a couple of those. The, the first time I ever heard "Paint My Masterpiece" was Jerry doing it on uh, on an album. Well, Gar- Garcia Band always played "Masterpiece," which was really strange that Bob sung it with the Grateful Dead when it was uh, in JGB. It was always a, a Jerry song. Exactly. But I will say that Bobby singing masterpiece, it's all worth it just to hear Jerry make Bobby string out the last um, uh, chorus by kicking it as late as he could to make Bob hold the note on the uh, when I paint. Yeah, exactly. So, yep. uh, but yeah, I always like to think I like to think that Johnny Cash would have rather had Jerry sing his tunes than uh, than Bobby anyway. But that's just you know that, that, that's just my personal guess. I, I, you know that could be, but. Uh, it's, it's just those little things, you know, that you forget because I don't listen. I don't have a chance to listen to these discs all the time. But I'm like, wait a second. That's Jerry singing Big River. And it just was, you know, when you catch it, it's fun. And uh, and it was good to see. So, uh, yeah, so that tour comes to an end in terms of great listening material. But, of course, they've got so much other good stuff out there. They've got my May, June, and July all covered with box sets. So, um, you know, from now until I can actually go see them in person, there's going to be plenty of great stuff to listen to and uh, and very, very excited. Um, let's pivot to our guest, Jay Cowie, who's here with us today. And I had just given a brief introduction before you hopped on, Rob. Jay's joining us today from Buchanan, Michigan. Um, he splits his time between there and uh, Beverly, uh, which is uh, just on the um, kind of the south end of the south side of Chicago. Um, Jay has a tremendous background in uh, all things financial. Um, he sits on the board of the Rex Foundation, and uh, he is active with a group called uh, Wall Street Dead Ahead. Ah, with, with my buddy Deb Solomon. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. How's Deb doing? Good. Coping a lot better now that she's fully vaccinated and some of the guidelines have improved. Um, she's adapting wonderfully. Glad to hear it. I'm a big, big fan of the organization. Uh, and sorry to cut you off, Larry, uh, but Jay, welcome welcome to the show. Uh, really excited to hear all you've got to say, because a uh, huge fan of the Rex Foundation, and obviously, uh, as you can tell, I've been to a few of the Wall Street uh, Grateful Dead gatherings, and uh, had a really nice time at everything that you guys have put on. How do you want to kick this off, gents? Well, here, let's do this, because the one other thing that I w- did want to make sure I mentioned is that you're a co-founder of Supercritical, uh, which is a full-spectrum cannabis and hemp advisory and consulting firm. So why don't we uh, focus on that, Jay, and if you want to give us whatever background you think is relevant to get, get us and our listeners up to that point, and then I'm sure we got lots of good questions to ask you. Sure, thanks, and thanks again for your time today. Uh, full-spectrum, Chicago-based cannabis and hemp advisory focusing on the legal space. Uh, we formed in late 2019, um, hung out the shingle primarily as a firm that would do capital raising introductions, due diligence, preparedness. Um, Kerry Jordan, our one partner at Supercritical, uh, comes from a private equity background and she's a CFA, so she knows the numbers well. Sparky Rose, our third partner, has an operational experience coming from him being the first one that was awarded the cannabis license in the U.S. period when he ran Compassionate Caregivers out in Oakland. So we feel we, we cover the realm of what startups need to know, and we also work with existing operators. 
uh, for the existing operators. It's primarily putting together networking relations, um, operating within that kind of supply chain logistics part of helping an operator expand into legal states at a less capex outlay. For the startups, we put them through our what we call our, our investor boot camp, making sure that they're ready for prime time. Um, we do take particular interest in startups that here, I'll, I'll say it this way. At Supercritical, one of our core tenets is we believe cannabis has attributes of disruptive technology. So beyond the recreational aspect of cannabis, there is the ability of this plant to develop industries, create jobs, disrupt on that level. Um, so those are the type of groups that we take a shine to or are very, very interested in working with. Um, I can give you examples of what those may look like, companies that can take uh, hemp biomass waste and through a fermentation and proprietary bacteria process, generate a whole new cellulose and polymer chain that has the ability to A, be 100% biodegradable and replace single-use plastics. And I think we all know what fossil fuels are doing to this earth. It's a humanitarian as well as ecological crisis. We work with companies that can take ultraviolet light recipes and tweak the strains. And this works also for tomatoes, soybeans, but uh, through happenstance, they found out it worked well with cannabis and triggers uh, specific genomic events in, in the plant to allow it to express itself fully, thereby increasing yield and output. We work with companies that are doing the same from the ground on up using living soils. So again, disruptive technologies, whether that's ag science, bioscience, uh, disruptive too in terms of social equity, right? Uh, Sparky Rose is our resident social equity uh, person on staff. And, you know, it's because of people like him that we need to really, really remind us why we're in this industry, industry and that's to work to rewrite those wrongs of the past that targeted primarily young black and brown people. I do know Sparky Rose uh, very well, and, and, and he's a great guy. I, I like him, and I'm glad you mentioned him. He's he's a good person to mention in this context. Yeah, Azuka did a great article on him, too, a couple of weeks ago. Azuka's a great example, too, of a company that through their, what is it, thermodynamic, individual, molecular encapsulation, have developed the ability to uh, encapsulate cannabis at the molecular level so it absorbs into the tissue, creating a faster onset, no nano emulsification. So again, geeky stuff around the science we really, really dig. And that's not even incorporating hemp. I mean, coming from my commodity background, I mean, hemp should be treated not unlike any other physically traded commodity. Acre per acre, it yields more fiber than cotton. And if not for a Again, targeted and harmful drug policy. Hemp should have been traded at the Board of Trade years ago. Well, I'm glad you say that, too. I'm, I'm uh, very active in hemp in Illinois. I'm a board member of the Midwest Hemp Coalition. Uh, I've got a couple of clients here in the hemp industry who are uh, uh, really pushing hard. And meanwhile, we have Illinois trying to pass uh, House Bill 147, which is a very, very restrictive bill as far as the hemp industry is concerned. Um, it's somewhat alarming that, um, you know, Illinois joins the list of states um, that have chosen to vilify hemp, ironically enough, now that it has been named a federally legal product, uh, while they still do everything they can uh, to really help support the marijuana industry, which remains federally illegal. Now, I have nothing against the marijuana industry, and I'm a big fan of that as well, um, but I see no reason why the two can't comfortably coexist 
and uh, but yet there seems to be this big pushback against what's happening with uh, hemp right now, and it's it's disappointing to see because it's making life difficult for certain people as they try to navigate the ever changing legal landscape of what the DEA says you can and cannot do. Um, and it, it, it's even even for those of us in the in the uh, legal business, it's sometimes it's difficult to keep up with what the DEA is trying to do. Well, do you think some of that pushback or rollback of opinion is because of D8? Because no one seems to know to do with D8 right now. Well, we've, we've talked about D8 and, um, you know, my and I'll yield to Rob on this in a minute. My, my quick thought on D8 is very simple. Um I don't see it as the bait and switch product that so many people are accusing it of being, right? Oh, we passed hemp laws and we said hemp can come in because everybody promised us hemp is safe, no psychoactive activity comes out of hemp. And now, lo and behold, we have legal hemp and people are trying to use that as a bootstrap to start selling D8. And, you know, I, I see where the government pushes back on that. But again, I wonder how much of that pushback isn't necessarily coming from the marijuana industry who might perceive D8 to be competitive with them for those coming in and looking for lower level THC products to begin with. Agreed. Right. Look, the fact of the matter is um, with CBD isolate, if you want to change it to D9, you can change it to D9 or D10 as well. So it's not just D8. It's a question of what catalyst you use and how you change an isomer. So, you know, taking CBD isolate as a starting material that's hemp derived what the DEA is trying to say now, which you know I, I find a, a fair amount of fault with, is they're saying, well, yeah, we never said that you know um, there was an issue with the extraction of hemp to CBD, but what you're doing now is now starting with a new starting material, which is CBD isolate, and now converting that to D8. So that's a second step process, and we've never said that that's okay. Now, having said that, look, the language of the Farm Bill or the AIA, you know, still holds. In the language of the IA has removed hemp completely from Schedule One status. Mm-hmm. So, as you know, I wrote a white paper about this specifically with regard to a work in progress hemp oil, Larry, and uh, and, and I believe that the DEA's IFR of last August is, is dicta, nothing more than dicta. And so, you know, they need to come back out and say to Congress, if if you don't like what's happening here, then Congress, you need to step in and you need to uh, to amend the language you already wrote in the Farm Bill. Now, what's happening in the interim is we've seen 15 states make D80 legal, which they can do. They've got every right to do so legislatively to say, okay, we're going to take a harder line stance. But my bigger question, and you know, perhaps, Jay, you can answer this because obviously you're an expert in this field, is D8 as derived from adult use cannabis, not from hemp, but from you know, inside the legal program, inherently every flower, every you know, bit of uh, concentrate contains some D8 anyway. So to say D8 is being made illegal, I don't know if that's necessarily true in the confines of the adult use markets that already exist. And, you know, could you take CBD isolate that's derived from cannabis that's produced at a, a large legal state legal cultivation facility and turn that into D9 or D8 without any you know, fear of, uh, of retribution from, you know, the DEA? Because you're already acting within the chain of custody of the adult use program. Yeah. And, and until I think we reach a point where this looks like it's going to be more and more federally regulated, only then can we have the oversight necessary to put those guardrails into place. So. Until that point, I think it's going to be a bit of a Wild West crapshoot. But back to, you know, the farm bill, it seems to me like the farm lobby ought to be hearing more from its constituents and take a position. Uh, The farm lobby, in my estimation, is a lot bigger than the current marijuana lobby in the U.S. They may not have as much money at present, but they certainly have the legacy and probably more members. 
I agree. And, uh, you know, that's why like groups like the Midwest Hemp Coalition are, you know, getting so active and going around and, and, and signing up farmers all throughout the state and really just saying to them, look, you know, this is an opportunity for you. Be aware of what they're trying to enact into the law in the state of Illinois to take away rights you may not even know you had, yeah. uh, you know, before it's too late. Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, for a lot of people, I mean, Illinois, Illinois I, I make the drive from St. Louis to Chicago and, and back or from Chicago to St. Louis now and back any you know number of times a year. And the minute that you go south of I-80 out of Chicago, basically until you get to the Mississippi River, it's all farmland. And, you know, it's corn and soybean as far as the eye can see, and that's fine. That's, that's supported this, this part of the state for a long, long time. Um, but there's a lot of farmers I talk to down there who, you know, don't even understand the possibilities of hemp and, and uh, how much less expensive it would be to grow the hemp and how much more they could potentially profit off of the hemp, depending on whether they have the right places to be able to sell it and things like that. And I think it's very important for groups like farmers associations and, 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 and other groups that represent people in that industry to really make these people know and feel comfortable with the fact that this, as you say, this is a viable commodity. Don't think of this as another cannabis product. Yes, it is technically cannabis. We don't disagree with that. But, you know, that's like saying I shouldn't grow corn because people make corn mash and make bourbon out of it. Right. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, I think it just proves the point that it's going to take a lot more education, getting out in front of the people um, and spending the time with them to help them understand the opportunities that hemp is just more is more than CBD. Because I think that's a common misnomer that that's all hemp is good for. I think that that's true. And, and, and people, you know, still don't quite understand. I mean, I've got a lot of clients who want to invest in hemp, who want to participate in hemp. And all they, all they do, all their business plans are just thick with stuff on CBD. And I will always ask them, have you thought about doing anything else, about fiber, about building materials? About, there's all this other stuff. Well, no, CBD, that's where it's at. You know, that's where, and, you know, look, I understand the allure of it, but like any other market, it's going to get inundated very quickly and you know only those that are really capable of doing it at a you know superior level are going to ultimately be able to survive right and because it's still at this point where it hasn't been normalized or standardized the only way it can become an industry and that commodity i i believe is for it to reach it kind of pantheon of other listed products again corn wheat oats soybeans and hemp, because then you have a standardized product that an industry has come together and agreed that this is going to be the quantity, this is going to be the grade, these are going to be the delivery points. And once you have standardization, then you bring in liquidity providers and the hedgers and the market uh, market operators who are making this a viable ecosystem to allow the farmers to plant for purpose. I think that's true, and you make a very important point. And it, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just a matter of I think the industry really stepping in and and and, and taking control of it. And one of the things we've been talking about with the Illinois legislature right now is, you know, to some degree, you know, the big issue around evolves around um, uh, CBD infused food items. And you know, what what do we really? Well, the CBD has to be tested before it goes into the food items, and the food items have to be tested afterwards. And a whole litany of things that just winds up making it almost. Uh, not cost effective to be able to do. And we in the industry are yelling at them, you know, think about going into the health food store and buying a packet of whey, right? W-H-E-Y, the stuff you come home, you put it in, and you make your, your whey shakes out of. That's all CBD is. However you test whey, that's how you should test CBD. That's the answer to your question, guys. If you're asking the industry what we think, 
That's what we think. There's no difference. There's no reason not to treat them the same. And the message that we try to share more with the marijuana people is, isn't it smarter to make a concerted effort to be working to pull marijuana up to where hemp is right now in terms of the recognition it's receiving and the fewer amount of restrictions as opposed to marijuana trying to pull hemp back down to its level to kind of make it what it sees as a more competitive playing field. And and I think that that's the wrong way. I think that they should all be striving to get to the point where they're as unrestricted as possible. Yeah, but I really think at the end of the day, Larry and Robert, uh, hemp is going to get there quicker, if for nothing else, than what we have in marijuana, our brands. And in order for cannabis as a recreational product to become standardized, in order for us to consider its value as medicine, there has to be some standardization to it. So hang with me for a second. If I'm buying Blue Dream because I want to treat the inflammation in my joints, there's no assurance that the Blue Dream I get in Chicago is the same Blue Dream I get in Denver is the same Blue Dream I get in San Francisco. Ergo, medical outcomes may change because they're all a little bit different based on indoor, outdoor, has this been tweaked for a terpene profile? So it's a lot easier to standardize the hemp plant over the, the marijuana plant. So that, that's why I think hemp should supersede, at least as a commodity. Well, I see that, and, and I just go along the basic lines, though, that with marijuana, all we're looking at marijuana for is to get people high, whether it's for medical purposes or recreational purposes or you know anything in between. Whereas with hemp, there's just a whole universe of things that you can do with it once the markets and everybody come and they recognize it and and you know the the the, the industries and, and regulations back down to the point where they'll allow it to be you know made a, a permanent part of products that are going into mainstream manufacturing and production in this company right if if one of the major car manufacturers decides we're going to manufacture all of our body parts out of hemp based plastics overnight that makes hemp infinitely more valuable probably than marijuana, just given the, the, the you know, the, the market you've just created for it and the, the future of it and, and everything else that goes along with it. And you're right, at that point, nobody cares what, the, what it tastes like. Nobody cares about the terpene profiles. They just care that you've grown hemp that has the necessary fiber and everything in there so that when, you know, you go and you process it, you can give them the plastics that they're looking for. And I, I, I just right. see it as a, as a big upside. Rob, what are your thoughts on all this? From my perspective, I think the whole CBD craze coming from uh, from hemp is um, largely short-lived anyway. And I think ultimately when people start seeing hemp in the way that Jay views it as an agricultural commodity with, you know, a lot of other uses for fiber and for all sorts of other, you know, hemp creeds, hemp plastics. Ultimately, I don't think hemp's appeal is, is the cannabinoid content that's within it. I think its appeal is what it's used for for a thousand other reasons uh, and, and how what utility it holds in building, what it holds in in, um, uh, in you know, you name the, the use. So, you know, leave the cannabinoids to the, to the THC-based side of the industry. I think it's relatively easy. You can extract, you know, meaningful amounts of CBD out of, uh, out of uh, adult-use cannabis, um, as well as, you know, CBN, CBG, all the other cannabinoids that you want to start working with. But when you think about hemp, you know, it, it should be science-treated on the, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the same way that, you know, soy and, uh, and corn are, and people should be viewing it through that lens. I agree with that too, and I think that that's right.
you know, it's just unfortunate that I've, I've had meetings before with, 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 uh, with traders and guys from, from uh, the board of trade here. And the problem that they just keep coming back to over and over again is, yeah, but it's cannabis, you know, yeah, but it's cannabis. And, and, you know, that is the unfortunate part about it. And, and I understand, you know, as far as the CBD stuff goes, Rob, I don't disagree. I think you can get great stuff out of marijuana. The problem is that the only way they're going to allow the CBD to be sold to the public at large is if it's hemp based, right? If it's, if it's marijuana based, it can only be sold through the dispensary. And maybe that's not such a terrible thing that now that we have uh, mostly states with mostly adult use. So most people have access to it. Maybe that is the answer is just to tell people, go buy all your CBD from the dispensaries and, you know, they can control the cannabinoid profiles and decide what they want to do with it. Or to relax the restrictions that exist around, you know, cannabis, which, you know, we're all working towards anyway. So it might be several years until federal legalization, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a chain of custody issue. It's, a, it's an issue of whether or not you can take uh, biomass, put it through an extraction process, put it through a white, uh, a white film, you know, um, or a fractional distillation process, and come out with multiple different components, of which only one being psychotropic, you know, which is the THC family, and everything else should be able to be removed from that to, uh, to be, you know, bifurcated away from uh, the dispensary model and put into, um, you know, the, the GNCs and vitamin shops and Whole Foods of the world even if it started off as, you know, something that's grown in a, in a state legal greenhouse, if the end result is a non-psychotropic, non-psychoactive uh, component or isomer, then I don't see why it should have to, uh, to go through the same, you know, issues. As you said, Larry, you know, once you hit a certain point, it's no different than whey, right? So it's only the one psychotropic component of that, and that's very easy to, uh, to, to separate at this point. Well, I think everything you just said is spot on, except that it requires, you know, people to use common sense and to say the mere (laughs) fact that it's coming out of marijuana shouldn't in and of itself disqualify it, even though for a lot of people that still does. Right. But yes, everything you just said is that's my CBD is CBD. Once you've once you've distilled it down to that point, it doesn't really matter. A molecule is a molecule is a molecule. Right. Whether it's whether it was sourced from industrial hemp or sourced from marijuana, but for those in charge and the powers that be, you know, living in a world that where every single person will tell you, I laugh when I watch Reefer Madness, yet it, it forms the core of their beliefs as they try to determine how to make laws to, you know, to, to handle this industry. And the crossover does exist between both sides of the house. Again, it's our, it's our firm belief that cannabis does offer those disruptive technology attributes and whether it's coming from the hemp or the, the fun side of the house. Uh, which is why we go down an additional path that's supercritical by being involved with developing curriculum. We, we're very fortunate to be part of the city of Chicago college system and helping a couple of uh, local colleges develop cannabis curriculum. Now, originally that was based around dispensary operations and through our input as well as the other advisors within this committee, and there's a lot of Illinois, not a lot of MSOs, but there's MSOs represented, Chicago Normals represented. We encourage the college to consider cannabis away from the recreational side. And again, look at these attributes that allow students who maybe have not considered a career in cannabis, but they 
are brilliant design workers or can come up with marketing, uh, graphics. Those are, those are needed and necessary since cannabis is a consumer packaged good. Um, urban gardening. So Olive Harvey College in Chicago has just put in a thousand square foot hemp grow to explore things like living soils and ultraviolet light recipes so that the students can get a real hands-on learning experience without having to be um, worried about the stigma, right? Still that is sometimes associated with marijuana. That's true. And, and, and it's always, I'm, I'm always happy to hear about those living here. I am aware that there are a few schools in the area that have, that have reached out and started programs like that. One of the community colleges up in this part, uh, Oakton community college has a, a program that they're, they're promoting now. And I think it's a great way to, to give um, the people throughout the state an opportunity to learn more about the, the cannabis overall and about all the various uh, opportunities that are going to be in the industry that don't necessarily require you to uh, be involved in the creation, the sale, the use of marijuana itself. Um, but there's so many other things. Once you have that knowledge, it really makes you valuable to uh, many different parts of the industry. It's the students of today that are going to lead the industry of tomorrow. I'm not going to be around here in 20 years, but I'm perfectly fine in sharing my acumen, my experiences, making sure that we do have a viable, compliant, and ethical cannabis industry in the future. Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in the, uh, the curriculum at Excelsior College uh, in, the, in New England, um, putting together their program as well. And uh, they've got a terrific you know, postgraduate program um, that, uh, that is specific to you know, kind of how to be a cannabis professional that's a lot different than what you'd see coming out of you know, kind of the, the cannabis-centric ones that try to get a, accreditation. But uh, it, it's you know really unique that you're actually seeing different groups that are saying, hey, how do we train uh, a CPA to be the next Jim Marty, or how do we train someone to you know get experience um, in Canvas to you know lead on the business side or within the C-suite, rather than just you know trying to train people to become bud tenders and, uh, and cultivators. Yes. Um, let's pivot a little here, Jay. With some of the time that we have left, tell us a little bit about what Wall Street Dead Ahead does. Um, Wall Street Dead Ahead Networking Group is the full name, and okay. Deborah Solomon is a New York-based small cap manager that uh, hit on the concept that there's a lot of like-minded individuals like ourselves that came from finance, the world of Wall Street, um, and figured that was a good way to put network meetings together away from more structured financial conferences that had an agenda or breakout session. Lord knows over the years, I went, enough, I went to enough global events about volatility or derivatives. The premise of Wall Street Deadhead is you're meeting with people from Wall Street who are Deadhead fans, and you share experiences, you share stories, you learn about each other, you become friends, and then later on you talk about business. So it's all about developing nurturing what Deb likes to call the family, and it truly has become, and, and it is a family. Um, I approached Wall Street Dead Ahead my final couple of years at CBOE, looking for a way to get more involved with a New York community that I wasn't seeing in some of the usual go-to conferences. I knew there are other people out there that probably weren't going to global hedge fund events, uh, and that became 
how I was introduced to Wall Street Deadhead and started attending her events, primarily her annual event, which I think uh, pre-COVID there was a six-year waiting list to even get on the event, and she sells out every year. Um, participation row she has. She's got a live band. Uh, Robert, you've been there, so you can speak to the strength of her events, but it's a good way for strangers to get together, meet each other, um, and then share something in common that could lead to a future partnership or business deal. It works. It really works. Is that a group that's open for uh, membership or does it, it, it has a waiting list to join or how does that work, Jay? Um, she's looking for sponsors um, and there are different events. I mean, uh, kind of all bets are off now because I think New York's still coming out of COVID and does not sure how to approach the annual event. But what she does is uh, do under 30 events. She does uh, family jam nights where local um, musicians, New York based, will get together at some predetermined venue and just jam. And that's all under the banner of WDSA. Um, I can send you information, make an introduction. I'm an advisory board member for Wall Street Dead Ahead, and I know we're always willing and happy to talk to uh, new potential partners. Wonderful. Okay. Well, that's very exciting stuff, too. And in the midst of all of this, you find time to be a board member for the Rex Foundation. Yeah. Um, How'd that come about? Kind of a long and short story, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who are like me, who are deadheads, but we're not rabid. I didn't chase the band around. Uh, I can't say I love the entire catalog. Um, I really like the sense of community that they built. So my first introduction to the dead was through my sister moved to San Francisco and I had cousins out in San Francisco, maybe heard some songs on the radio, but I read more about them than I learned about them or listened to them, I, I should say. So of course, reading uh, Thomas Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, she had a, you know, a good understanding of where the dead were coming from and possibly where they were heading. But at the time I realized what this spirit of community meant to the band and what the band meant to the community. And the basis of the foundation is we do it at a grassroots level. And it wasn't always possible for benefit concerts or charity gigs to be that prudent path. They were a, a big time stock, to be honest with you. So the foundation was built as a way to give back to the community. Um, the average size grant we give out, we're not Oprah, we're not the Mark Carter Foundation. We do grants in the $2,500 to $5,000 realm. Uh, occasionally we'll do the Bill Graham Award, that's ten grand, And you have to have an operating budget of less than a million dollars a year to be nonprofit status. Those are the things that appeal to me because these are groups and organizations that are putting it on the line every month. And if you're a let's say a storefront theater or a social service center, the difference between making that month's bills and operating next month could be that $5,000. So the ability to come in and touch a great amount of people at the grassroots level, validate to the degree what they are doing um, is why I got into it because I love volunteering to begin with and I, I love giving back. So. Working in San Francisco, I was able to um, spend some time with Cameron Sears. He was the band's last manager uh, and executive director of, of Rex. And I 
got together with him. I said, Cameron, here's where I come from. I love the world of finance. Here's what I think I can do. Here's some things I noticed that maybe you want to look at and change uh, just within the website, kind of update things. My mantra is always going to be, how do you stay relevant? So let's do some things that can kind of get us jump-started with some additional muscle, additional strength, additional buy-in. And that was his idea in working with an advisory board. So I was brought in as an advisor. Uh, I said, let's try this, that, and the other thing. If you think I'm full of bunk, you know, we can go our separate ways. And that was about six years ago. Uh, it's been a tremendously rewarding experience working with this board, with this group of individuals that has such a storied past um, and such a caring, giving group. Um, we are on track this year to reach $10 million mark in, in total grants given since inception. So we're, we're very, very excited about that. And having me in the Midwest and Deb is also on the board in New York allows the board to kind of cast a wider net in terms of these groups that we're serving. Very interesting. Rob, you've had some experience with the Rex Foundation, have you not? Very little, Larry, um, outside of, you know, watching what they've done and the things that they support over the years, you know, the same way I've had experience with like Waterwheel, you know, it's uh, <laughs> not, not very much outside of, you know, being a very passive observer and, and really um, being supportive of the uh, endeavors they've, they've gone after. So, you know, Jay, much respect for, for the work that you guys do and for all the things that you guys have uh, put your time and energy into over the years. Thank you. It's, it's truly a pleasure. When we get together, we do make uh, meaningful differences. There's nothing better than coming out of a board meeting where you've awarded 10 or 12 different groups and then giving them those calls the next day and just hearing the excitement uh, and gratitude. If people want to contribute to the Rex Foundation, what's the best way for them to do it? Uh, how, how, do, how do our listeners get involved? RexFoundation.org. There's a link right there on the homepage. What about our uh, listeners who are interested in talking to you for the skills you bring to the table through Supercritical? J-A-Y at supercritical.agency. Uh, and we're happy to give a complimentary consultation before you get down the brass tacks and see what people need, see the direction they're heading and impart upon them our, our sage wisdom and advice. It's our belief that there's a lot of information out there in the cannabis world. There just ain't a whole lot of hard facts. So we make it our job to remain relevant so we can bring back to you that actionable information. Wonderful. Okay. And that's a new one. I, I, I've, I've heard of a .com, a .gov, a .law, now a .agency. It's a wonderful thing on the internet. Yes, Got to keep up with it. You can ever do. So, Jay, let me just ask you, do you have you, uh, uh, I assume that uh, you saw the, uh, Jerry and the boys back in the day when they were all still uh, touring uh, as a full band. Um, do you keep up with them at all? Uh, any of the variations, Dead & Company, Further, or any of those? Have you been to Dead & Co. companies? Is it, is that something you still follow? Yeah, Ricky Field shows, for sure. Honestly, I, I felt more in alignment with JGB. Uh, it was Jerry that really, you know, inspired me to pick up the banjo. When I first heard the Grateful Dead, I realized, okay, here's this trippy-sounding band. And then when I heard Jerry play banjo, I thought, oh, that was interesting, how he headed off in that direction without realizing he started on banjo first. So when Old and In The Way came out, that really blew my mind. Uh, and then when things like JGB evolved and his work with not only Merle, but Melvin, I feel I'm more of a, you know, JGB fan than the dead. You know, I love the Grateful Dead. Uh, I like Dead and Company with Mayer in that role. 
nothing against nothing against Trey. I, th- I think John just kind of slots into that role a little easier. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'll, I'll turn on JGB any day of the week. I always said on any given day, you know, I would be just as happy to see the Jerry Garcia band as the Grateful Dead. And, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of us who are kind of like Jerry-minded people who who kind of think that way and feel that way. Um, so it's always nice to meet one more and, uh, you know, very reaffirming in that regard and everything. But, yeah, he's, he's just such a, you know, boy, some of these you know albums they've come out with, you know, Jerry Before the Dead, you know, that five-album set of all of this music that goes back, you know, for him, like, to the beginning of time. And you just you just realize what formed the basis for this guy who later on would play morning dues that would make you cry. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's amazing to see it. And then you put on him and Grisman and, you know, they can sound like the hot club coming out of Paris in the, in the thirties. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's um, an interesting thing that you talked about a little bit, you know, last time, uh, Larry, when we had Alex Beard on the show about, you know, kind of what Garcia's playing was like in the, uh, the last couple of years, you know, of, I've had the discussion with a lot of people that that might be true of how he played with the Grateful Dead, but as someone that didn't miss a single Garcia band show for the last two and a half years that Jerry played, you know, I, I saw nights where he was as crisp and as lucid as he was ever in the, in the late 1970s playing with JGB. So I don't know whether or not the, the fatigue was with the band he was playing with as his primary band or whether or not, you know, he just liked playing with the Garcia band more. But, you know, all the criticisms I've heard of like, oh, the Grateful Dead were no good after 91 or after 92. I challenge those people to go listen to a Warfield show from the you know 92, 93, 94 and see if they'll say the same thing. Because I can tell you that like, I heard like Mississippi Moons and and uh, and deals that were just you know absolutely just you know tangled ups that were like blow you away uh, consistently. So you know uh, uh, Jay, to your point, I'm uh, in many ways a much much larger fan of the Garcia Band than I am of the Grateful Dead. And if you were to say on any given night you know go see a show, I'd much rather see JGB. If you were to say catch them on their best night, I'd rather see the Grateful Dead. Okay, good yeah, point. Yeah, I, I think that I, I could absolutely agree with that. Um, but, but you know, look, I think that the thing that drew us all to the Jerry Garcia band was Jerry, you know, and, and as much as we can all say, love Bob Weir, love Phil Lesh, those are all competing personalities. They've got songs, they've got, you know, they're looking for their, their, their microphone time. They like their songs played a certain way. You know, Jerry just can't take off on a lick that he feels like playing without making sure that the whole rest of the band is there with him. When it's his show, it's his show. He can, you know, and, and that's where I think a lot of this creativity side of him and, and this freedom almost, if you will, uh, to just go to town, and then that was what was so captivating about it for me, you know, was to just have an entire night of Jerry solos, you know, mm-hmm. one song after another, and it just, I mean, it, 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 you know, by the end of the night, I would I would be exhausted. It was so overwhelming and amazing. And the Warfield Bob was the the, the site of the the loudest concert that I had ever been to. I think that building was shaking. It was a tribute to Jerry a couple of years ago with uh, Melvin and Tom Hamilton, O'Teal. I was there. It was called Like a Road. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, in, in January of uh, 2018 or 19. Yes. Um, and it was absolutely fantastic. I was there with Susanna Millman and Dennis McNally. Oh, you were. I love Dennis. Yeah, they are. Uh, they've become good friends of my wife and myself. So they're, they're dear hearts. We were supposed to do a Days Between event last year in Chicago with Dennis and Susanna. I had. Um, 
worked with the Beverly Arts Center, we were going to do three days of Days Between. It was perfect. We had it set up that first week of August. It was going to open up with a 12-week installation of Susanna's photography, her band photography, some of her travel photography. That was going to be Friday night. Saturday, we were going to do a one-on-one with Dennis McNally, kind of a retrospect, and then uh, a dead cover band. Sunday, we were going to do another uh, look back with Dennis and then show the Grateful Dead movie from Winterland. Uh, and then COVID just came in and, well, we know what happened there. So we hope to revisit that in the next year. If you look at my profile picture on the Deadhead Canvas show, you will see a picture of me um, pointing at Jerry Garcia's uh, dressing room inside the Warfield, and that is from that Like a Road night, um, taken taken um, late night after the second show. Okay. So it's uh, always made me happy to go downstairs in the Warfield and still see it. They still have Garcia's star on the door, uh, you know, these 25 years later. Or his big portrait on the, the stairway coming down from the upstairs at Filmer. Oh, the Fillmore, yeah, that was always a nice touch, too. I like that. That a lot. was another thing we missed, too, because that would be the site of our annual Rex event, our big year-end blowout. Uh, we did the virtual version of it this past year, and I'm hearing that there may be the ability to do a scaled-down version of the Fillmore event this December. Well, it's always a fun place to be, rich with history, no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And... Uh... I, I wish Dennis remembered me. He probably doesn't at this point, but he was very, very kind to me in, uh, in the 1990s on tour. He was very close to a close friend of mine, and we used to go over and hang out at his table, and he was just making sure that everyone's tickets were real when he had the counterfeit <laughs> sort of check area. And uh, so we'd go over and hang out and rap with Dennis all the time, and he was just a super, super kind-hearted person and always really yes. welcoming. And you know, So I uh, never got tired of having people come up and sort of hang out and just you know chat him up for a while. But, uh, but he was kind of the only person... That was truly front of the house during that period that you know you could approach that was out there in the parking lot and Dennis was just a great guy. Oh, they are both good, good souls. Very good souls. And here's me, you know, a guy that came out of the Midwest and all of a sudden I'm kinda in that scene and all of them frankly welcomed me with, you know, open arms, no assumptions, no judgment whatsoever. Dennis is in very good mood these days because the Giants are in first place. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Yep. Well, that's, that's true. Good for them. Yeah. You know, I always liked watching the dead sing the national anthem out there. I thought that always cracked me up when, when Jerry would put on the Giants j- jacket and go trundling out to the outfield there in, in uh, Pack Bell Park and sing up with the boys. Did, did he do that more than once? I thought that was just one time with him and Vince and Bobby that, that did it that one time. It may have just been one time with him, but I think that the Bobby's done it more than once. Yeah, I'm sure Bobby has now. Yeah, but there's... The, the, the night where they all put on the SF jackets, and uh, I, I want to say that was in 93 or 94. Uh, that was, I think, opening day, or maybe not. Something like that. Now every ballpark in major leagues has a Grateful Dead Appreciation Night. They have one in St. Louis every year. My friends keep sending me the one with the Cardinals tie-dye, with a steal your whatever it is. And it just cracks me up that, you know, all of a sudden they've become not just mainstream, but like, ultra mainstream to the point where you know groups very conservative groups like major league baseball want to want to organize specific theme nights around them for their for their fans i love that we have three rex nights at wrigley three in two years so it is a good model um the cubs organization loved it and it's a good it's a good fundraiser for us as well but yeah you're right Uh, all of mlb is picking up on it 
Oddly enough, no hockey fans, though. I don't see it translating over to the NHL as, as well. No. no, 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 no. Baseball, that's like the, the, the essay I read years ago about why uh, going to a baseball game is like going to a Grateful Dead concert. You know, they, they talk about how some nights it's a good game, some nights it's not a good game, some nights the whole night is average, and then something happens that's so unique and special that could only happen, you know, and these there's people who keep statistics for every show and people who don't and people who compare this era versus that era and on and on and on. And the more I thought about it, it just really seemed like a natural that, you know, if you're a baseball fan, especially if you're one of these saber geeks who really gets into the numbers, that translates beautifully over to the Grateful Dead. And, you know, I really see that, you know, football players, hockey players, you know, I see that more as like heavy metal, smash mouth. We've got all this testosterone energy we got to do something with. Although for some reason, when the St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup a couple of years ago, they picked uh, the old uh, 70s um, disco tune Gloria as their theme song, um, which Fish was able to come out and reproduce the night the Blues won the Stanley Cup and Fish was in St. Louis and they came out to open the second set and actually played Gloria. And, uh, you know, to me, that's just, you know, more fodder for why jam bands and guys like Trey and Jerry and all of them are so great, especially when they're tuned into those kind of things and have the ability to really on the fly throw it together. And I think a lot of credit there went to Paige McConnell, who actually did the singing and, and kind of kept the, the, the tempo of the song going forward. You're talking about the uh, the Laura Branigan tune, not the Van Morrison song, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yes, the Laura Branigan tune. Yes. That somehow the, the Blues picked that up as their theme song, took them all the way to the Stanley Cup championship, and Fish played it, and everybody just went crazy. Well, Jay, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today. Thank you so much. Um, it's a fascinating background, and you know, as with many of our guests, I'm sure that uh, we would have no problem filling it up another hour or two of conversation with you, and uh, hopefully there will be opportunities to bring you back in the future and hear more about the work you're doing and some of the organizations you're working with. Um, but we really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you. And I appreciate the invite. really enjoyed myself, so thank you very much, Larry, Robert, and Jim, if you're out there. <laughs> wherever Jim is somewhere in the wilds of Oregon or wherever the heck he says he was driving back to Colorado I didn't quite follow that geography in terms of where he would be but I'll leave that up to Jim I'm sure by this time next week he'll be back in the barn and uh, he'll have some good story to go along with all of it Rob as always uh, great show thank you so much for joining us hope all is well with you well thanks Larry and thanks Jay it was an absolute pleasure and please keep up the good work with the Rex Foundation and give Deb our best and uh, everything else you're working on. So it's it's great having you as a guest today. Thank you. And you guys keep up the great and fine work yourself too. Larry, we need more more guidance in this cannabis industry. Like I said, there needs to be more ethics, more compliance. Uh, There's a dearth of ethics in this space. So um, I think everyone needs to be mindful of the bad actors out there. And I think you're doing the right thing. Well, great. Thank you. We appreciate that. And couldn't agree with you more. You know, we have to be able to, to kind of police the industry ourselves and help and make sure that it really does go in the right direction. It's, we're an industry that starts off with a little bit of skepticism from the public, and we don't have a lot of room for error, you know, without losing that public support. And we always preach that, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if your neighborhood, if, you're, if your competitor down the street isn't doing well, that's not necessarily a good thing. We want to see everybody succeed. We want everybody to have a positive experience with the cannabis industry. And I appreciate you saying that. I think that's all very good. And a good note to end on, 
Uh, to all of our listeners, thank you again uh, for joining us for another week. Uh, we appreciate it, and we will look forward uh, to our next show next week. Uh, in the meantime, everyone, enjoy yourselves. There's uh, some great live dead coming on uh, that's going to be broadcast over the next couple of weeks. Be sure to check it out, either live streaming uh, or uh, uh, just stuff you can pick up on the, uh, the Grateful Dead channel. Uh, but we will always give us good stuff to talk about. Until then, everyone, enjoy yourselves and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.